here today I, but we got the important people so that's what matters oh good okay sergio's got that going all right here's what we got we're going to read psalm 119 verse 129 actually starting verse 129 and that's pay which in hebrew pay means mouth your testimonies are wonderful therefore my soul keeps them the entrance of your words gives light it gives understanding to the simple I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Look upon me and be merciful to me, as your custom is toward those who love your name. Direct my steps by your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Uh, let's see here. I got a prayer request this morning. Uh, Clarissa's daughter is 11. She's struggling. She lost her grandfather who lived in the house most of her life or all of her life. And uh, so we've been asked to uh, pray for her daughter who is uh, missing her grandfather and not handling it very well. And uh, I'm going to do two things. Instead of reading Christian history today, I'm going to show you one thing. Read you a letter that I got in the mail just when I walked in the door today. Enclosed, please find a calendar that her son Jamie has made. As you can see by the front page picture, I don't know if you can see that he is wheelchair bound, 24 hour ventilator dependent. Yet, he can take amazing pictures of God's creation here in Arizona. He has made a ministry of sharing his pictures and the Lord's scripture, both at church locally and in his calendars to friends and family, many of whom have never read the Bible. We are very thankful that through technology, Bluetooth, I don't know what all these others are, JAW something, I don't know, I'm digital cameras, tech something, Jamie can have the joy of service to others and share the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Please accept this to, uh, right? So uh, uh, this is from some people in Arizona and my thought on this, two things came to mind as soon as I saw this. First is that uh, we have um, Chuck Pearson who died just uh, about a week ago or two weeks ago, and he's going to be buried on the 29th or have a memorial service. And he was also in a wheelchair uh, all of his life. He had a little more mobility than this gentleman, apparently. But um, you take two guys that are in wheelchairs that actually are doing things for the Lord. And here we find every reason on this planet to not do something for Jesus with our lives. When these people are totally, it's like Johnny Erickson Tata, right? Can't do anything. She's got to be helped. It takes her three hours to get out of bed in the morning. She's got bed sores that are painful. And we find it too difficult to go out and tell about Jesus. And this guy is dependent on ventilation and a wheelchair, and he can move his thumb, and he takes photos and witnesses to people through his artwork. So think about that. So we have Chuck Pearson, who uh, is like him, and uh, we have yeah. we who are not serving as we could be so those are my thoughts on that i just thought i'd share that with you and uh, then i have one more thing to share with you which will not be any longer than reading this day in christian history so i'm not wasting anybody's time more than anything else but i got a wonderful poem from a girl uh we've supported her once uh when she's she's from australia she went to the philippines and i mentioned it and some people helped her out but uh her name is Laura Gibson, and her father and I know each other on Facebook. And anyway, 
Laura sent this to me and I got permission that I could read this. She listens to all of my sermons. This is a girl that's young and she's listened to all the sermons, right? And she listens to the poems at the end. And she said, I'm going to start writing poems while I'm in my church and whatever the subject of the pastor is. The pastor, uh, his subject was the wall and she cites Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ for he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us to make in himself of twain one new man. And so while listening to the sermon, here's what she wrote. Down the middle, strong and tall, impossible to breach, there stood a self-inflicted wall preventing open speech. On one side, there was paradise. Imagine what you'd see. It, it, it housed the shining holy one. The other side was me. I longed to reach the glowing side, its light spilled o'er the top. It drew me so I tried to climb, but found that I could not. You see, there used to be no wall. I once walked by God's side, but then I disobeyed his truth and so was forced to hide. The wall that loomed before me now, all shadowy and dark, each wretched stone was wrong I'd done and bore my finger mark. My holy Lord wore flaming white while I was drenched in sin. Ashamed, I tried to fill my life with other gods than him. And so my ears were stuffed with noise, but left me feeling void. The wall grew only stronger with each tactic I employed. Then one day, someone strong and tall came up to where I lay. He strangely seemed familiar, though why, I could not say. He wore a crimson robe, but it was overlaid with white salvation written on his hands, which turned the shadows light. He laid those hands upon the wall and pushed against the stone. Then all at once it crumbled. Not a brick was left alone. I uttered an astonished cry, for now I could see plain. The one who broke down the wall was my God, who I had slain. And now he opened paradise, inviting me to come. He filled my empty soul with peace and made of two lives one. So we can sit in church and we can listen to a sermon and fall asleep, or we can sit in church and do something productive while we're in church. So I want to thank both of these people that gave me something to share with you today, which is rather wonderful to me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for people that are willing to step out of their own little zones of comfort and to extend themselves for the ministry of Christ in whatever capacity it is, whether it's writing a poem in church instead of listening to the pastor, or probably listening and writing, or whether it's a person in a wheelchair who has served like Chuck Pearson did with his life in the ministry and how he touched so many lives with what he did and with what this gentleman in Arizona has done. What a glorious thing it is that people are willing to expend themselves that way. And so help us to just put our foot forward, Lord, and to also expend ourselves. Our time is short, our days are numbered, and when we're gone, we cannot make up for what we've left undone. So help us to exalt you with our lives until the day that you come for us, be it in death or hit your glorious coming for the church. Either way, help us to do this, Lord. And we certainly pray for the 11-year-old girl who's missing her grandfather. And Lord, we pray for the others who are afflicted and, and in trouble or in trial or who are traveling right now. It's uh, that time of the year where a lot of people are traveling to see family and friends. And so we pray for them as well. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. <sighs> Pretty wonderful, huh? Yes. I'm telling you. Anybody wants a copy of that, you just let me know and I'll email it to you. That was really wonderful.
Um, and I don't know if they sell those calendars or not. If they do, I'll ask them. And if so, then if anybody's interested, I'll get them one if they want it. It's for a 2019. Uh, we're in Romans chapter one still. I'm sorry, one Corinthians chapter one. I did that last week too, didn't I? But I wrote it right here. I know I did. One Corinthians chapter one, and we're in verse 21. And let's see, I'm going to go back to 18, which is the beginning of a paragraph for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of this world? Verse 21, for since in wisdom of, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Okay, here are my thoughts on that. Paul, introduced the main thought of this section showing that the cross is the power of God unto salvation and that the thoughts of man, no matter how high and how lofty, are foolishness when considered apart from the cross. And you think about it, think of anybody out there that has done something great and marvelous by our standards. And if he doesn't know Jesus, they really, it has no significance, zero, it, it, none. It's, it, it's a purposeless existence. I don't care how much the guy that founded Apple that died a year or two ago died with. It doesn't make any difference. He's completely separate from whatever he did and whatever he had. And uh, he's the one going to have to face the Lord apart from the salvation of the Lord, apparently. Um, unless somebody talked to him in his last couple minutes of life. Thinking on the great mental achievements of man. Philosophical, logical, scientific, Einstein. Hawkins, you know, these people are great minds, Aristotle, we find that none of them bring us any closer to how we actually can be saved. They may be filled with incredible amounts of knowledge and yet still not explain what is truly important. As I said, I think I said it two weeks ago, maybe last week, Aristotle was before Christ. He was outside of the covenant people and he thought about the nature of what must be a creator and what he must be like more than 99.9999% of all Christians today think about the nature of God. He understood what this being must be like. He must understood all kinds of things about God, but he did all of it from general revelation. It didn't get him this much closer to salvation because without Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. And so you can get only so far with general revelation, and then you must have introduced, as Paul says, where is it, 21, the foolishness of the message preached. You can't, get, you can't get to heaven without God's special revelation. General revelation, that's trees. That's, you know, the oceans. That's looking at the stars. That's thinking about what things must be like before the creation. And all of those, that's all general revelation. We can think those things through to a great degree, but we cannot think through the saving message without understanding, one, the fall of man, two, what God promised he would do about the fall of man, and three, how he would do it in the giving of a Messiah, who we find out is his own son, Jesus Christ. So um, uh, it's interesting to know about quasars and the farthest reaches of the galaxies. I've seen some great sermons on that particular issue. One of them was done by a guy named Charlie Garrett at Grace Baptist Church about five, six, no, eight, ten years ago. It was a long time ago. But I talked about the nature of quasars and pulsars and 
I'm giving myself a plug there. Anyway, um, uh, so it's great to know about those things. It's great to add into sermons. It's knowledge that we can accumulate, understanding the greatness of God. But if we are destined to perish apart from God, what difference does the knowledge of those things make? They make none. Absolutely not. And if you think about it, which Burke talked to me a couple of years ago when we were sitting here before class, it says in the uh, book of Genesis... In the first chapter of Genesis, let me see if I can find this really quickly. It says, um, um, verse 16, Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Everything else outside of the earth, the moon, and the sun. Everything is I don't know how many words it is in the Hebrew, probably two, the stars also. Anyway, it comes down to one, two, three, four, five words in the English text. Five words. Everything in the universe, apart from the earth, the sun, the moon, everything is in five words. Think of it. We can have all that knowledge and it doesn't mean anything to us. It was like an afterthought when he said, oh, he made the stars also. I mean, it's just all of that splendor, all of that grandeur that we know about. Five words. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, and so Paul begins with verse 21, saying, For since, because the sage, the scribe, and the disputer could never attain to the highest and most important knowledge of all, in the wisdom of God, as Paul says, another path was chosen to reveal that knowledge. Now, why is that important? The reason is that salvation is completely separate from human ability, endeavor, or determination. It is completely separate from those things. If the very highest aspect of man, the intellectual mind, cannot attain to God, then whatever God gives to bring that reconciliation is greater than that highest aspect of man. As I said, Aristotle thought all kinds of things about the nature of God through. He thought all kinds of things through, and other people throughout the years have as well, and yet all of that knowledge is not equal to the saving message of Jesus Christ. All of the knowledge in the world is not equal to that one simple gospel message. Though the world, or I'm sorry, Paul says, though the world through wisdom did not know God, is referring to the concept that the sage, the scribe, and the disputer, these highest offices in man's understanding, still don't know him. They may be able to deduce that there is a God. As I said, Aristotle did that. They may be able to deduce things about this God, they may even be able to know that there is a disconnect between this God and themselves. Classic example, little two-year-old girl on Burke's Facebook page today. Amazing, absolutely amazing. This father is filming his daughter. She's reading a book about Jesus and about, you know, Christianity. And she couldn't have been more than two years old. She could hardly speak. And while she was reading, the father said something and, uh, uh, it said then in the book that Jesus, who is God, learned something, you know, it, it, it was a paraphrase of Luke where it says, and he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It was a paraphrase for children to read. And she said, she asked a question that, now think of this. This is a girl that is this big. She said, if he's God, how can he learn anything? This is less than a two-year-old probably, but maybe a two-year-old. And she asked a question that most people would never even think of. If he is God, how can he learn anything? She understood there's something, a disconnect in saying Jesus is God, and yet he is. And so the father explained to her the incarnation. But to imagine a girl asking that question, and then she got towards the end of the talk, 
And I'm not kidding when I say this. We're talking about doing wrong. And uh, the father said, well, you don't do anything wrong or something. I can't remember the exact conversation. You have to watch this video. But she said, oh, I do things wrong all the time. None of us can do right. This is a girl that is, I, I'm not kidding. She could hardly speak. And she said exactly what the gospel says. It says, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And here this little girl is saying things that are more profound than the wisest professors in universities say. To, I'm not kidding. The professors say, I've done nothing wrong. There's no such thing as sin, et cetera, et cetera. This little girl understood more than these people because she has a knowledge of the gospel message. With that simple knowledge that we're talking about here, she has probed the depths of God in a way that most people outside of Christianity will not even think of. They won't even consider the things that she said. I was astonished at what she said. I was literally astonished because of the gospel message. Yeah. You ask a kid that hasn't heard the message of Jesus and they're just not going to have any clue. You have to tell them that there is a problem. And once they understand it, they acknowledge openly. Hey, nobody can do good. It was like hearing her quote the gospel. It was um, unbelievable. All right, so we'll go on. Uh, they may be able, I'm going to read this again. They may be able to deduce things, deduce things about this God. They may even be able to know that there's a disconnect between God and themselves, as that girl did. However, they may have absolutely no idea how to resolve the disconnect, which a little two-year-old can. If they're told the message, it, it comes in. Everything else starts falling into place. This teeny little mind able to figure these things out. I couldn't believe it. The sage who gives advice can only say, I think this is the answer, while being wrong. Or he can simply lie and make up a religion, which happens all the time, which is why there are so many false religions. People know there's a problem. They don't know how to take care of it. All they can do is deduce. And so they say, well, this will take care of it. This, And you just have religions. Hey, you think people have been making up religions for 6,000 years and it stopped, it, stopped 100 years ago? Absolutely not. Scientology came about in my lifetime. That's a multi-billion dollar endeavor. People make up religions and then other people say, I'm going to follow that. Do you wonder how the deception is going to hold true at the end times after the rapture? Simple. Make up another religion. Whatever it's going to be, the guy's going to say it and people are just going to say, oh yeah, no problem. And you know, I was talking to my friend on the phone a couple days ago and we're talking about how easy the deception will be. How absolutely easy it'll be. I, you know, my example, which I've given many times, is if all of the Wahhabi Muslims on this planet, which is mostly in Saudi Arabia, if they all disappeared today, and somebody said all the Wahhabi Muslims disappeared, would you believe it? Would you think that God raptured them out of here? Well, no, because we believe in Jesus, and Hindus believe in, you know, Krishna and whatever, okay? People believe what they believe and when they're all gone, nobody's going to believe that. They're going to say, well, it was something else, or it was government conspiracy, or they'll make up all kinds of... It's going to be the simplest thing in the world. When the Pope is still here, because he will still be here, I'm pretty certain of that, and you get all these other bigwigs that are in religion that are filled with pomp, but they're not filled with Christ, they're going to be here. And the true believers are going to be taken out, and all these people are going to say, well, we're, we're Christianity. And the whole world's going to say, oh, then it was, you know, it was aliens or it'll be the simplest thing in the world to dismiss. Or it was that nuclear bomb that somebody lit off at the same time that the rapture happened or whatever is going to happen. It'll be easy to dismiss. Believe me, when it says the great delusion, it's a self-inflicted wound. God sends them a strong delusion. He's already sent it to them in the human mind. Okay. They're just going to believe it. Anyway, um, Let's see here. Yeah, he can only see, I think, in all these false religions. Do you know what, um, what's his name? L. Ron Hubbard said, talking about false religions. You know what he said when he was, 
Does anybody know what he did before he started Scientology? He was, no, he was an author. He was the most published author in human history. He wrote more books than anybody ever. He's the guy. And he said, I am tired of writing for a penny a word. He said, you want the big money? Start religion. That's what, he, that's a quote that he said, and he did it, and people follow him, and he made the big money. And he, he's often, you know, his reward right now. But anyway, you know, I mean, that's how stupid people are. They, he said it, and they still follow him. The scribe, what's that? Yes. yes, yes. The scribe can pull out his many texts on science, logic, philosophy, and so on, and say, these don't resolve that particular problem. The problem that we have, this disconnect with God, this problem with sin, which we don't even have to teach a child to do wrong, they already know that we have to teach them how to do right, they can pull out any book on any one of those disciplines and it will not solve the problem. Again, when this fails, he can make up a fib. He can say the universe created itself. I mean, that's common speak nowadays because they know that the universe had a beginning if it had a beginning, that leaves only one of two possibilities. One and only one of two possibilities. Either there is a beginner to start the beginning, or it created itself, which isn't an option at all, because if it did create itself, then it existed before it existed, okay? Which is a logical contradiction. And so what do they do? They go to the quark, and they say, look, this quark popped up over here, and then it popped over, over here. So it's creating itself in new places which it's not, it's just doing something that God designed in a quark, which we don't understand. But they say, that's how the universe created itself. It popped itself into existence. It, the, the ludicrous nature of the human mind that we would say, well, there was a beginning and we know that for certain, we didn't need Einstein, he just proved it, but we know for certain that there was a beginning and that means we have to have a beginner or we have to make something up. Once again, the fib comes in, all right? The universe created itself, there is no God, Problem solved. Unfortunately, the problem is not solved. The disputer can argue back and forth with a classroom full of inquisitive minds about a relationship with God, but the answers will always fall short of satisfying those inquisitive minds, if they are truly inquisitive minds. Like the scribe, he can make up a tale and tell the world the problem is solved like they do on the Discovery Channel and like they do on TEDx. I you know, I like watching these TEDx videos because they got some really great things and they make you think differently. But at the same time, it always comes back to a humanist approach. Always. You have to be able to say, I'm going to not get caught up into that type of thinking, but it's still interesting the things that they develop. It's interesting some of the music that they play. And, you know, one guy will play a whole band on a single guitar and just great stuff. So, but you have to be discerning because they are looking, all of them, when they get talking, that always dismisses the creator. Always. It just, I don't think I've seen one that actually acknowledges that there's a God yet, but they're very interesting videos and they're short. You know, I don't have a lot of time during the day. I will be uh, uh, working all day. Hidako will come home while she is just getting ready to set the table. I'll watch one short TEDx video. And then after that, we'll watch 20 or 30 minutes of something during dinner. That's all the time I get. So a movie takes three days to get through. But TEDx is a good thing to watch for me for a couple minutes a day. Hidako can listen without seeing it. And anyway, so, but I do recommend them. Just watch where you go with them because they are doing it from a humanistic uh, viewpoint. But um, yeah, we, uh, God 
No God, problem solved. The disputer can argue back and forth with a classroom full of inquisitive minds, like I said, about the relationship with God, but the answers will always fall short of satisfying those inquisitive minds. Like the scribe, he can make up a tale and tell the world the problem is solved. We evolved from a lower species. Natural selection and evolution have brought us to where we are. But again, we know that there is sin in the world and one cannot evolve into sin. Can't have it. It's impossible for you to evolve into sin. If it's a natural thing, then it's not sin. It's the natural order. When an animal eats another animal, you can't say, well, that's wrong because that's what he does. So we say that's morally wrong. You can't evolve into that type of a position. I don't care what angle they take from it. You can't do it. There would be no consideration of wrongdoing if natural selection were true. And that is why when people, I came out of evolution, the two hardest things for me to get over when I came to Christ, the two hardest things were one, the evolutionary model. Okay, I was taught Riverview High School right down the road here, and that's what they taught. 16 billion years old and etc cetera, etc cetera. and the second one was because i started attending a king james only church i was like i gotta listen to this nonsense i, I need to read king james version that lasted about two seconds after thinking it through but it was difficult to get through and it was more difficult and it continues to be talking to people that are stuck in that mindset because they don't understand theology and so what do they do they fall back on something goofy like king james onlyism i, I hate to say it if you're a king james onlyist i apologize but it's goofy Anyway, we can talk it through. Send me an email. I've got hundreds of errors from the King James Version catalog because I go through the Bible one verse at a time in the Old Testament and each morning in the New Testament, and I've cataloged them. They are errors, okay? So that one you can throw away. But the evolution one was the one that really I struggled with because I'd been taught for so long that the universe is 16 billion years old. And the Bible says that God created the world in six days and that there's 6,000 years since that time. So we're about 6,000 years right now. And I thought, well, that just can't be. And so I struggled with it. But after thinking the issue of especially morality through, can't be any other way. Because you can't evolve into sin. And if you say that the universe is long-term and God allowed the evolutionary process, which many supposed Christians hold to, I mean, I'm talking people very theologically sound in almost every other discipline except this and they say well we just believe that god allowed the creation to evolve from that point there's no need for jesus christ it eliminates any need for jesus christ if we evolved into sin why because the bible teaches the doctrine of original sin man fell without there being a creation and an actual fall we don't need jesus christ He's unnecessary. Does everybody get that? It is unnecessary to have a savior if you don't need to be saved. And if you evolved into your sin, then you weren't ever lost. Just like the animal that eats another animal and it doesn't have any conscience about it. Okay? It's the natural order of things. Everything we are doing is naturalistic if we evolved. Everything. All right? So, you know, and I know people will send me emails and they'll argue this point. Eh, you know, it could be billions of years and here's how God did it. And that's fine. You know what? One guy had on TEDx. No, it wasn't TEDx. It was a, a creation site because we're talking about this and it's valid to it. He 
had this this uh, demonstration of how the universe kind of expands, and there's this this line where it goes down below, and when it's below this line, time stops. Okay, and it's very good theory. I mean, this is a Christian. He's identifying how below this point time has stopped, and everything up here is going on, and it could have gone on for billions of years. And then when this finally reaches the point where it comes above the line, time begins for us. And so when a guy goes to bed. And he wakes up at six billion years later, and yet it was only a moment for him, okay? I don't know if it's correct or not. I'm, I'm not a physicist, but it was a very interesting analysis on a creation site that I saw. Because you think about it, if you're outside of time, like God is, then time doesn't matter. To God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day, okay? He's outside of time. Time makes no difference when you're outside of time. So if you are outside of time, while this thing is doing this dilation or whatever he called it, Hey, if that's the way he did it, that's fine. But it doesn't change the fact that this guy is six days old, okay? There were six days in the creation account, and man was created. Six days later, he did his thing, okay? That's, or on the sixth day, God did his thing for man, creating him. Okay, there you go. Um, and that's way beyond me. I'm just giving it as a possibility, but it doesn't change six-day literal creation because that's what the Bible says, and a day is a day. You can use, and I will defend this, I mean, not defend it, I'll argue against it so that you have both sides of the issue, is that in the Bible, when it says the day of the Lord, how long is that? It's an undetermined amount of time. It can be a day, it can be a thousand years, right? The day of the Lord has come. It can be 10 years, it can be a seven-year tribulation period, okay? So a day does not always mean a day, even in the Bible, all right? But when he says in Genesis 1, evening and morning were the first day, that means it's a day. And when he does it six times in a row, that means it was six days in a row. God is not using ambiguity or vagueness like he does with the day of the Lord. He's using very precise terminology. A day is a day. It was a literal six-day creation. Man was created. Man was put into a garden. Man fell in the garden, and he was expelled. And everything beyond that expulsion, everything is to get us back into the garden with him. Fellowship once again with our creator, everything. And it all centers on one person, Jesus Christ, who died because there was original sin. Okay, here we go. Um, no matter what approach is considered, without God's special revelation, the wisdom of the world cannot know God. And I mean intimately, they cannot know him. And so because of this, God demonstrates his ultimate wisdom in a way which thus confounds the greatest thinking of man. Paul says, in this, it pleased God. In other words, God is satisfied in the method that he chose because it demonstrates his omniscient authority over every man and over all men. Every man cannot attain to God and all men cumulatively, which is what we're striving for in this world, everybody taking their knowledge, putting in the compu computers, building a resource of knowledge. Eventually, we will be able to attain not God, maybe something else, but it will not be God. All men together cannot attain to God, and they never will, because he is an infinite, we're a finite, and it doesn't matter how many finites we put together, it will never attain to the infinite, okay? Our wisdom cannot attain to God. So, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, yes, this isn't God lording his wisdom over us in an arrogant way, but his demonstration to us that this way is the perfect way. It allows, as I said earlier, the young child 
the jungle dweller, the man on the street, and the business executive, and any other person who so chooses it to accept it, to rely wholly and solely on him. It is his grace in it. His grace is seen because there is a total and absolute reliance on him. Everybody understand that? If there wasn't a total and absolute reliance on God, then it wouldn't be all about God. It would be about us in some way or another. And when I say, I said uh, the young child, the jungle dweller, the man on the street, and the business executive, I will add in Muslims. I will add in Hindus. I will add in any religion you can think of. And you want to know how I know? The girl that I read that poem from, Laura Gibson, when she sent that, you know what she said to me? She said, I was out with my dad and we were witnessing to people and there was a Muslim family. And there, it was a lady and her child. And she said, uh, he, he said to her, because it's a lady, go talk to her. And they ended up talking where this lady says, I want to come to church with you, right? They're, they shared the gospel. These people want to know Jesus. They want to come to church. It'll break through any barrier. Absolutely any barrier can be broken through by the gospel message. I don't care who it is, how smart they are, how stupid they are, how young they are, how old they are. They can believe. And it can be on the last moment of your breath. As long as you accept that before you close your eyes for the last time, you will be saved. It's the message of grace. There are no conditions beyond the reception of Jesus Christ. All right. And this beautiful, marvelous demonstration of God's wisdom is the foolishness of the message preached to those who, to save those who believe, as Paul says. The foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It isn't the preaching which saves, thank goodness, because I'm so tongue-tied every Sunday. It is the message contained in the preaching. Therefore, the preacher is wholly dependent on the accuracy of the message. People will email me from time to time and they say, why do you read everything? Why do you read your Bible studies? Why do you read your sermons? Why do you read everything that you do? It's because I want to be precise when I do it. When I stop and talk to you now, I'm not being precise. And I don't remember 99% of what I sat down and took the time to think through on these things. The sermon has 10,000 technical points in it. Anybody that's read one of them knows they, they go away and their head hurts because it, it is something that God has given us. And I want every single bit of that information that I can glean out of it because I'm never going to preach on that passage again in my life. And I want it to be proper. I want it to be precise. And I want it to be accurate. And so it takes 8, 9, 10, even 11 or 12 hours to do a sermon. And the easiest thing in the world, I've said this, what, seven, eight years in a row now. Easiest thing in the world for me is to do a Resurrection Day sermon or a Christmas sermon. Because I start on Monday morning and I'm usually done after six or seven hours. You know, I just, we're doing Micah 5, 1 through 5. I analyzed the Hebrew, but I didn't have to get into a real deep analysis of it because I didn't have to remember what I did the week before. I don't have to think about what's coming in the sermons ahead. I just type and it's happy and I'm done really quickly and I get almost an afternoon off. It's And if I didn't do an analysis of the Hebrew in these five, that sermon would have taken me two hours and I would have been D-U-N and it would have been finished, okay? But, uh, yeah, well, I spelled that wrong, didn't I? Anyway, um but it's not worth it because you are accountable to the Lord for whatever you say. James 3, 1, let's go there really quickly. Why do we do this? Why do we give such care to God's word? And it says right there in James 3, 1. I read that this morning. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. I'm accountable for every word I say, whether it's in this class or whether it's in the uh, the uh, sermon or whether it's any other time that I am teaching the word of God, I'm accountable for it. 
And so I want to make sure that I am precise. And if I'm wrong, what do I do? The next week I say, you know, I made an error and I, I hate doing that. I, I can't tell you how it galls me to come here and say, last week I said something that was wrong. Ugh, but I'm going to do it because I don't want people to have wrong information and their gray matter. Okay. But um, uh, here we go. Uh, yeah. Foolishness of the message preached to those, preached to save those who believe. Okay. If the preacher preaches a wrong message intentionally or through incompetence, then there is no salvation. Thus, there is the responsibility on the listener to check up on the preacher, as I say week after week after week. Check up on what I say, okay? And then uh, this again demonstrates that even the preacher and the listener are altogether dependent on God for salvation. The preacher and the listener, they're both dependent on God for salvation. In this, Paul calls the message preached foolishness. He will explain this in the coming verses, especially verse 25, which is just a few, we'll get it today. But to consider the context now will help us think through what he means. If the greatest minds in humanity, pursuing God through the greatest disciplines, cannot find out how to be reconciled to him, then whatever he devises for our reconciliation is higher than what those great minds with their great achievements can attain. The simple foolish message of Jesus Christ is higher than all of the cumulative wisdom of man combined because man cannot attain to what God is going to do in the saving of Jesus. And you want proof of that? Just look around the world. The highest minds in the world have not come to Jesus Christ. And yet the foolishness of a two-year-old girl can say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Somebody tells her the simple message and she processes in that teeny little brain that has hardly had any time to grow. And she says, I've done something wrong. Dad's mad at me. And if dad says there's a God, then he must be mad at me too, because he's greater than my dad. I mean, she can think these things through. It's incredible. And she says, I need Jesus. And she starts singing lullabies to Jesus and reading books about Jesus. Unbelievable. Absolutely astonishing. Yes. Oh my goodness. So, um, Let's see here, uh, verse 25, oh yes, um, let me get this on, where was I, then he, oh yes, okay, pursuing God through the greatest disciplines cannot find out how to be reconciled to him, then whatever he devises for a reconciliation is higher than what those great minds with their great achievements can attain. And if that immensely great plan of God is mere foolishness, then imagine how stunningly awesome is the overall wisdom of God. If the foolishness of God is greater than all of the human thought can ever produce. And it's just foolishness to God. Imagine how great God is. Imagine life application. Never underestimate the greatness of God. 122, let's see what we have here. For Jews, oh, this is a great verse. Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. This verse expands on what was just said by Paul, that it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The term for means since, and therefore this is less of an explanation than a continued rendering of the same idea. Let me just read it as since. I'm not trying to change the word of God, but this is the intent behind it. It says, for since in the wisdom of God, the wisdom through the world, through wisdom, did not know God, it pre-pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe since Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. The for here implies the word since, okay? Not trying to change the word, but that's what the word implies, all right? 
So the term means since, and therefore this is less an explanation than a continued rendering of the same idea. In this then he details the categories of those who reject the foolishness of the message preached, which is what Paul just said, and why they would reject it. The first are the Jews. They request a sign in order to believe the message. If you don't believe that, pick this book up and read it. Just read it once and you'll see a thousand times where the Jews request a sign. In one way or another, they need it. All right. They, uh, they request a sign. However, the term request doesn't fit with our concept of what the word means. When we think of request in the modern English, we think of someone asking for more, more soup in a polite way. Can I have some more soup, right? What the Jews wanted in a sign was more of a demand. In essence, we will believe you only after we see a sign. So the word request is kind of an adamant thing that Paul is using, all right? This is seen several times in the gospel record, such as in Matthew 12, verse 38, where it says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They're demanding it. They're telling them this is something that we think is necessary. By receiving such a sign, they certainly felt that it validated their status as a people before God, as much as it validated the authenticity of the one to provide the sign. As the covenant people, they had the oracles of God, the prophecies of a great future kingdom, and so on. They could refer to the great signs and miracles of the past, which showed that they were God's favored people. And so they expected them to be shown as a continued evidence of this. However, a sign from a person, if a true sign is ultimately a sign from God, right? If it's a true sign, it didn't come from the person. It came from God who's validating the position of the prophet. He's validating the position of the seer or the son of God, right? The miracles that I do come from the Father. That's a misquote, but he's basically saying everything I do is in accord with what the Father allows, what he wishes. We're in one accord, okay? Uh, so it's validation of, where was I? Um, okay, yes, ultimately a sign from God. It, if it is, then what the one who reveals the sign proclaims is expected to be listened to and acted upon. Now, I don't know if I'm going to say this in my further commentary, but I will say it right now in case I forget later, is that the book of John in particular deals with the signs of Jesus. This was the first of his signs. This was a sign. He uses the term Simeon or sign several times all the way through his book, very carefully placed to validate without any doubt at all that the person that was prophesied in the Old Testament is him. That's what those signs are there to validate before Israel. Okay. In Jesus' ministry, he performed a specific group of signs, beginning with, oh, here it is, turning water into wine and culminating with the, what's the last great sign? Resurrection. Thank you. And yet, despite this proof, they rejected the message that accompanied the signs. Paul and all of the apostles preached the message of the cross. The cross implies that there was a sin debt to be paid before one was right with God. But the Jews, believing that they were already right with their God, in which they still believe to this day, right, rejected and crucified their Messiah. The message was foolishness to them. Not only did they reject and crucify him, but they rejected the message of the crucified Messiah. It goes both ways. They did the act and then they rejected the act. Thus, the signs that accompanied the message were rejected. Because the signs were rejected, guess what? The one... God, from whom the signs came, was also rejected. 
You can't separate. You know, I say this, I said it either in last week's sermon, I think it was, it was last week's sermon. You cannot say logically that I believe in the God of the Bible and say, I don't believe the Bible. You can't logically do that. That is inconsistent. That is incoherent thinking. And that is exactly what's happened here. He gave the signs. You can't reject the one who gave the signs and who proved that he is who he says he is without rejecting the one who sent him to do those signs. That's why the Jews were in so much trouble for the past 2,000 years and why it will, why it will continue. Yes. Christmas time. The angel said, this shall be a sign unto you. That's right. This will be a sign unto you. Christmas time. Absolutely. <laughs> the virgin will uh, have, a have a son. And uh, I'm trying to think of Luke. and Because uh, I've got Isaiah 7, 14 in my head right now. Because that's coming on Sunday to a sermon near you. But uh well, anyway, yeah, it, it basically repeats the same thought in Luke, and I will read from Luke also, but uh, that's right. This is a sign to you. Uh, the, ver the girl, the baby lying in the manger and all that, it was a sign to the people. That was one of the things that God attested to through the giving of his son. Anyway, um, in Jesus' ministry, he performed a specific group of signs. Oh, I, I just read that. Unlike the Jews the and the Greeks, seek after wisdom. So you've got the Jews who seek a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. Sounds more like the people in the world today. I mean, the Jews are still seeking after signs, right? But the Greeks are, and how many people in the church are seeking after signs? They're looking for something visible and tangible to validate their relationship with God. I'm sorry, I don't believe in that. I don't hold to that. I do believe that the Lord prompts us to do things. I do believe that the Lord tells us that we should do this or that in a way that we can either accept it or reject it, okay? I, there's way too much evidence to deny that. But I'm talking about people looking for a sign to valid. Oh, I, I, I went outside and I saw a star, uh, uh, you know, what do you call it, a shooting star. That validated. Uh, it doesn't work that way, okay? Shooting stars happen all the time and they happen anytime. Things happen in this life. I do not accept that God gives anybody a sign to prove that he has done something for them or he's going to do something for them. When he heals a person, I've got another healing thing. I gave one on a person with a brain tumor a couple weeks ago. I got another one that I might include next week or the week afterward. Anyway, um, he always leaves a possibility that it wasn't him that did it, right? Oh, it just, you know, so that people have to believe. Everything that God does is based on one word. In our relationship with him faith everything if we have sight we do not have faith that's yeah that's right that's that's it's either one or the other there's always a question in our minds as to whether we will accept it as god's working or the working of just chance or you know chemotherapy or whatever you want to attribute it to but the person that has faith says i believe that god did this we prayed for that child we prayed for that person and he was healed and i believe that that was an act of god all right, but there's always going to be the chance that somebody can say, oh, I wasn't, you know, go ahead. The little girl, he said, who do you want to marvel after? And she named some uh, people. He said, how about biblical people? And she said, oh, that's right. Joshua. That's right. And she, he said, why Joshua? Because he obeyed God. Because he obeyed God. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> Absolutely. It's amazing. That little girl with these, these. I mean, they just just old enough to to learn to speak, and she's saying these profound things. He obeyed God, absolutely. Just unbelievable. Anyway, um, let's see here. Okay, the Greeks seek after wisdom. Little girls seek after Christ. The Greek approach to enlightenment was to go deeper and deeper into the heart of a matter, searching out the nature of things. Nothing wrong with that. 
I'm say it right now. I'm not diminishing understanding how things work because that's how we get things done. When we understand how do things work, we can make something simpler and then we can sit around all day and let that do the work for us and we can make a lot of money. There's nothing wrong with that. So please don't think that I'm diminishing wisdom in any way, shape or form. Johannes Kepler said that um, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. That's why he was a scientist, is because science is thinking God's thoughts after him. He wanted to know how it works so that now I can understand the mechanics of it and I can improve other things by understanding that. Okay, that's right. We have electricity. It's always existed. But how do we make it work? Science is thinking God's thoughts after him. There's a lightning bolt. How can I take that and make it beneficial by making lights come on in my house, right? This is what God did. He, all these things belong to God. How do we make them work? X-rays have always existed. There wasn't a person that invented X-rays. There's a person that invented something that could capture X-rays and make them make a picture. Does everybody understand that? There's nothing we've created. There is nothing that we have done. When Solomon says there is nothing new under the sun, he wasn't kidding. It is all God's stuff. And we are just simply making things to understand and to work with God's stuff. Okay, so when I say that these people are seeking after wisdom, I am not trying to diminish seeking after wisdom. If you want to sit in the projects, and there's a family that for years was down in the projects, and we saw them every week for a, just a, what until about uh, six months ago. And two boys there, and one day one of them is just struggling with life. And I said, Do you want to be sitting here on this porch when you're 90 years old? Because that's where you're heading. That's where you're heading with your life. If you don't get up and start using the mind that God gave you, you're going to be sitting here thinking, what happened to my life, right? There's something to be said for using wisdom, but there is also something to be said for accepting God's plans and the way he has done things, which only he can reveal. So I'm trying to, in one way, defend that it's good to be productive, good to be thinking, good to study, and all of those kind of things. But here's what we say about the Greek. The Greek approach to enlightenment was to go deeper and deeper into the heart of a matter, searching out the nature of things. New ideas were constantly received and evaluated. This is seen in the book of Acts, when Paul went to Athens. There Luke records, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new, right? And what did Paul do? He stood up and he started talking. He said, this guy is, he's espousing different gods. And he says, no, let's read it. Wonderful passage. You'll understand what I'm talking about. And you know what? Paul had no problem either understanding wisdom. How do we know that? Because he cited three philosophers in his writings. Uh, two philosophers and three, wait a minute, Epimenides, Epimenides, the what? Oh, I know it is here, but I'm thinking also of in Titus where he writes, uh, he quotes Epimenides there as well. And he says, um, uh, what does he say about Epimenides? He says, um, uh, it, it, Cretans are always liars. The statement is true. Well, that's the Epimenides paradox. If all Cretans are liars and he was a Cretan, then what he's telling is true, but it's false because all Cretans are liars. And Paul said, the statement is true. So he's trying to get you to think through a problem of logic in the Bible. Anyway, we'll go on. Acts 17. It says, um, uh, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine of, is of which you speak. For you were bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. 
Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. That's right. Now, think of it. They say to the unknown God. So they have an understanding that there is a God that they don't know and they don't want to offend him. And so they make an altar to him. And now Paul says, you're right. There is somebody that this inscription should be addressed to. Now, I'm going to tell you about him. Here, let me explain him to you. That's what he's doing. Now, I want you to know, I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter. And we're not going to get a lot of theology here, but you'll hear what Paul is saying. It took us to go from Acts 17.22 to Acts 17.34 about a month, maybe a little bit more. But we'll go on. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And then here he quotes Epimenides. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's, Epimenides was writing about Zeus. And Paul grabs that and he says, hey, this is the real God that I'm telling you about now. Not Zeus, but the real God. And also some of your own poets. Now he quotes a guy named Aratus. Okay, for we also are his offspring. So there's a God. In him we live and move and have our being. There's nothing that, everything that we see, God is everywhere. There's no place that he isn't. Every single place, every quark, every giant, massive red giant star, he is everywhere, always, at all times. Okay, and we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Well, Others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. And verse 34, wonderful verse. Greatest minds in the world were willing to accept the premise. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some believed. Okay, so we've got these people that believed. What does it mean when it says he believed? Romans 10, 9 and 10. This is it. He stood up and he gave a speech from general revelation, and then he introduced the gospel in a very simple way. God raised him from the dead. And what does it say here in Romans 10? That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He uses the word they believed to tell us that those people believed and they were saved and they did nothing apart from it, okay? And because it's recorded in God's word, they are believers. And because they are believers, they are believers forever okay that's the way it works there's no such thing as loss of salvation god doesn't think that way if you think that god thinks that way you're thinking the wrong god okay he doesn't make mistakes he doesn't error in giving somebody his seal of guarantee doesn't happen all right 
um, ever in search of new things, new ideas, and new concepts of the workings of the world all around them, the Greeks sought out answers to everything in exacting detail. This is equivalent to the world of scientists today, and we see it all the time. They get little powwows, and they meet here and there. They have, you know, uh, online meetings and stuff, and they talk about things scientific. They're looking for the exact details of the Big Bang. They're searching for the God particle. They want to know everything about everything because they believe that through knowledge alone, they can identify the meaning of life and the reason for our existence. I'll talk about that during the Prophecy Update this Sunday. Because of this, the message of the cross is utter foolishness. How could everything be so intricately balanced, so marvelously timed, so exactingly researchable, and yet require an act of grace from God in order for us to be made right with him? I mean, we can determine time down to atomic levels where I have a clock mom gave me. It's got to be 13, 14, 15. No, it's older because it, I, she gave it to me like the year I came back from Malaysia. Little thing sits on our, our our windowsill, and I just replaced the batteries in it a month ago, maybe less, a couple weeks. That thing, I've had that for years, and it's timed in. It's synced into the atomic clock, okay? And so all I have to do is put the batteries in there and let it sit by the window for a while, and it'll pick up that signal, and it gives me atomic time all day, every day. I know exactly what time it is, and all the other clocks in the uh, house are off, but that one. And so I go to that one when I really need to know. But the one that's next to me where I sleep is always about 15 minutes fast. And then a couple of them I'll put a little behind. And I have reasons for doing this, which help me mentally. But when I really want to know what time it is, I just go to the atomic clock. Or I subtract the 12 minutes ahead on that clock that I need to know to get out of bed or whatever. So, But it's it's a balancing act up here. I'm sorry. There's not much going on. And it's, it's very carefully timed. Anyway, um, but having all the clocks record correctly would not work with me. I assure you of that. So um, anyway, um, and I know that I'm not the only person like that. I know I'm not the only bizarre one on the planet. Can't be. Um, anyway, so uh, yeah, knowledge and uh, the, the uh, let's see here. Yeah. Why do we need God? Why would we need God to give us grace to be right with him when we can figure everything out? We can make chairs with green cushions and black cushions and white dots on them. If he existed at all, then certainly he would find us acceptable because we have spent our time searching out his creation so carefully, wouldn't he? Isn't that enough? Searching out the creation, he must be happy with us. But searching out creation is not the same thing as searching out God. The creation declares the glory of God, but it is separate and distinct from him. The creation is not God. We don't worship the creator through his creation. We worship him because of it and because he is the originator of it as the psalmist said in psalm 102 let me take you there really quickly psalm 102 hang on here whoops i dropped my thing let's see 102 i'm going to take you to verse 25 of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you will endure they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. The Greeks, like the intellectuals of the world, search after wisdom through the creation. And they miss the one who gave the creation. 
The message of the cross has no place in their minds because it doesn't fit with their presuppositions about how things should work in a universe which is so organized and so seemingly understandable. Everything is understandable until your wife dies or until you get cancer. And then all of a sudden, it's not very understandable, is it? Right? But people don't think about those things. It always says, what is it? Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, I think. Let me go there. If it's not, then we'll go on. Hang on. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Psalms. Yeah, people don't think about those things until it's too late. And Solomon says the most bizarre thing. I think it's Ecclesiastes 7. He says, uh, hang on here. No, he says a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house to feasting. What are you talking about? Why would anybody want to go to the house of mourning? Look at a dead person laying there. That was my wife for 35 years. I better not say that. For 47 years or 52 years, because we've been married 35 now. I don't want something there. Anyway, right? But he says it's better. And then he answers why. He says right here, for the that, meaning the house of mourning, that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Well, hopefully so. Some people go and they don't take it to heart, and all they do is talk about the parties they had with that guy. I've been to funerals like that, but hopefully you'll think, that guy really died. He had an end. I'm not going to see him again, and so I better get thinking about the things that really matter. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Where was I now? Yes, the Greeks, like the intellectuals of the world, seek after wisdom. I've said that. And uh, so the organ, yeah. In both approaches, the problem is a misunderstanding of self. Sin is a barrier to the message of the cross. For the Jew, sin is discounted because of Jewishness. For the Greek, sin is discounted because an orderly universe demands an orderly answer to all things in a way which is reconcilable apart from God. We've got all the answers to the universe, so we don't need God. Life application. The message of the cross is God's way of telling Jew and Greek that sin is a real problem and that it can only be fixed by him. Don't overanalyze the solution to the point where you miss the grace. And don't expect the grace to be granted through a miraculous sign. Accept the grace of God and be reconciled to God. That's a nice life application. Um, having said that, I said at the beginning, don't overanalyze the situation to the point where you miss the grace. I love to tell people about the first principles. We've talked about them in the class a few times. And before we get done with the book, I'll go through them. A is A, A is not B, A or B. And you get through all of the 12 first principles and you understand the logic of the universe and you understand the nature of God, okay? And what is not God? You can eliminate all religions on this planet except for one by using the 12 first principles. That's the very first sermon I preached from Genesis. It was Genesis 1-1 and that's all I did was talk about God apart from the Bible. But you don't want to use that when you're evangelizing people. It's great to have the knowledge. It's great to understand. It's great to use when you're defending Christianity against a Jehovah's Witness. But you do not want to introduce, as I said, don't overanalyze the situation to the point where you miss the grace. The gospel is very simple. You're a sinner. You need to be saved. Just keep it simple right? That's all you need to do. If somebody doesn't think they're a sinner, then you do what Jesus did. And you say, you know what the Bible says about the law? You break one 
point of the law, you've broken the whole law. And you ask them, have you ever told a lie? And they'll say, I've had many people say no. And then I say, you know, you're a liar. And they get offended sometimes. Sometimes they say, yeah, I guess I am. Anyway, doesn't matter. Everybody knows they've lied. I, you know, it's astonishing when people will say no to that answer. I mean, but most people are frank about it. Yeah, I've, I've told a lie. Anyway, well, guess what? That means that you've done something wrong. You've violated a precept and God is everywhere. God doesn't accept that. I'm sorry. And they start thinking, oh, yeah. So what you do is if they don't think they're sinners, show them they're a sinner and then give them the grace. If they think that they're sinners already, because you go up to a person that's on the street throwing up on himself from a bad party the night before, and you say, you know, you're just destroying yourself and God isn't pleased with that. Oh, I know. I just don't know what to do about it. You say, well, let me give you the grace. You don't need to go through the sin. They already know it. So if they don't know it, give them the law and then give them the grace. If they do know it, give them the grace and get it done with. Keep it simple when you give the gospel message. 123. But we preach Christ crucified. Let me go back to 22. For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. This verse is given as a contrast to what was just stated. Taken together, they read, oh, I don't need to read it again. Whereas the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, those who hold to the doctrine of Christ have a different view of a relationship with God. But is the contrasting conjunction. We, however, preach Christ crucified, is Paul's words. Signs are unnecessary for a right relationship with God. Abraham is the pattern of those declared righteous by faith. He was given a promise which would otherwise seem impossible, and he believed in his belief God credited to him for righteousness. That's found in Genesis 15.6. 15, 6. Thank you. Abraham believed God. God said something. It says Abraham believed God and God credited to him for righteousness. End of story. He gave him a marvelous, he didn't give him a sign. He didn't ask for any wisdom. He just simply said, look up at the stars above you. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abraham said, okay, God, good job. I believe it. And God credited to him for righteousness. That is the pattern of salvation through the Bible. The law was given to show us that we cannot meet God's needs, but in the law, those people that are saved followed the pattern of salvation. Read David's writings. Okay. The work of God in Christ is that he would be crucified for our sins, but the Jews were looking for something outwardly great in their Messiah. Surely he would be a grand king, a conquering ruler who would vanquish their enemies. Instead, he was a humble servant who was nailed to a tree this would be particularly offensive because the law which established them as a people says explicitly, he who is hanged is accursed of God. Deuteronomy 21:23. Well, that guy was hanged on a tree. He's accursed. How can he be our savior? Guess what? Paul says in Galatians, where does he say this? Galatians 3. Thank you. I got to get there first. Galatians Three, you've saved me the trouble of looking for it. Let's see here. Is Burke right? Nation, sight of God, and to your seed. I'm not seeing it. Um, I'm not seeing it. I know it's here. I know he said it's in first chapter three. Anyway, he cites that same verse. He says, um, cursed is he who's hung on a tree. That's a misquote of it, but that's uh, it rhymed though. Anyway, Paul uses that to explain the very thing that the Jews, if you find it great, let me know. If you don't, don't worry about it. 313. 313? Read it out loud. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Okay, so they saw Jesus and they said, he's cursed because he's on a tree. But they didn't understand that the curse was to redeem them from the curse. He became the curse so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That had to happen and they could not process that. They couldn't understand that they weren't inherently righteous because they are the Jewish people, which, as I said, it still goes on today. I had a Jewish girl that I'd known since I was a little boy in this church one day. She came by to visit and she said, oh, all Jews get to go to heaven automatically by default. She said, maybe if they kill somebody. That was her answer to theology. Okay, let's go on. Let's see here. Um, the contrasting... Um, God credit to him for, oh yeah, okay, because of the way in which Christ died, as much as anything else, they simply couldn't believe where a sign was expected, a dead, a dead man was hanged on a tree, which was their sign, by the way, but what did they say, uh, what was that, uh, that redneck that uh, always, here's your sign, look at the cross, there's your sign, folks. Okay, anyway, it does, Jeff Foxworthy, anybody remember him? Oh, yeah. He did the, the, here's your sign, you know. Okay, it was a very funny series. Anyway, okay, um, uh, this then became a stumbling block. He's, this guy's hanging on a tree. It became a stumbling block to their understanding of God's redemptive work. A stumbling block, which in the Greek is the word skandalon. Does anybody hear something in there, skandalon? Yeah, it's like scandalous, right? It's something which trips one up. When one walks and there's a large block in front of them, what are they going to do? No? Large block? They're going to walk around it or they're going to walk over it. They actually see that block. If there's something big in front of you, you don't just keep walking. You take evasive action, right? They what? Detour. Thank you. They walk over or around it. But when there is a slightly raised and almost imperceptible bump, it isn't noticed. And because of this one, trips over it. That's a stumbling block. A stumbling block is something you don't see. It's not something you do see. And they didn't see it. They missed everything that scripture is pointing to. And we see it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in these Old Testament pictures. Every single detail. This word points to this, which means this. And it's just, it's astonishing how much Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament. And yet they stumbled right over it. It's what happened to the Jews. They simply tripped over the work of Christ, not seeing it for what it was. They didn't see some big block and say, well, we got to walk around that idol. That happened to our fathers and they went to Babylon. And so we're not going to do that anymore. And then Hosea said, well, that, you know, that there's adultery there. We're not going to, that's a stumbling block. And if we do it, well, the ram on the day of atonement, will take care of that. So we're going to go ahead and do that anyway. Right. They, they, they could walk around those things. They couldn't walk around Christ. They just stumbled right over him. They never saw what they had so evidently pointed in front of them. For the Greeks who looked to wisdom as the ultimate goal of existence, the cross was simply foolishness. The body of Christ was crucified and it died. How could God's redemptive plan include something so base, so not mind-centered? Wouldn't Christ be able to speak out wisdom that was hidden concerning all things? Wouldn't he be able to explain why we were here and what our purpose was? If he died as he was nailed to a tree, then obviously he didn't understand the way to living forever. And if he was dead, then he was gone. The resurrection must be foolishness. It's the delusion of his followers. And that's exactly what some of them said when they said he's espousing some religion and the resurrection of the dead. And they mocked because they couldn't grasp that that's how God would do it. 
This is why Christ is rejected by Jew and by intellectual. They're looking at the world around them with presuppositions about how God would do things. But we are men and not God, and we cannot fathom what God would do. All we can do is look at what he does and accept his work by faith. Life application. Christ's death atones for sin. Christ's resurrection proves that his death atones for our sin. Have faith in these things and be reconciled to God. Very simple. Very simple. 124. But to the Jews, oh, I'm sorry, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In the previous verse, we read that the apostles preached Christ crucified to the Jews, which was a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. Without the crucifixion of Christ, there would be no atonement, there would be no forgiveness, and there would be no reconciliation with God. But the message seems foolish to the majority of those who hear it, both Jew and Gentile. However, Paul tells us that to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, there's an understanding that what God has done in Christ is of the utmost value and of the utmost importance. Because he mentions Jews and Greeks in one verse, it is saying that regardless of heritage, there's one body in Christ. And by the way, if he says Jews and Greeks in one sentence, what does that mean? They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. They're still Jews and Greeks. He says it all the way through Romans. He's continuing on in 1 Corinthians. He never says that we became Israel, ever. That is not in Paul's wording. It is not there. If you've been taught on replacement theology, you've been taught wrong, okay? There is a difference. Thank you. There's an understanding that what God has done in Christ is the utmost value and importance, okay? We are shown in Romans 3 that there is, oh, here we go, no difference between Jew and Greek because both are bound under sin. In Galatians 3.28, he tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2.14, he says that the middle wall of separation is broken down. The middle wall was a barrier at the temple which separated Jews from Greeks. These distinctions are now erased in Christ. But it goes further. The term Greeks here is used to represent all Gentiles. Paul is saying that it makes absolutely no difference where one is from, what their lineage is, nor the color of their skin. There is one body comprised of people from all groups, male and female alike, and they have all come to the same glorious conclusion, which is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because all are bound under sin, then there must be a level playing field on how that sin is removed. As we cannot do it, then it is obviously beyond our power and beyond our wisdom. As this is certain, then it is truly a demonstration of the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jew and Greek alike fall short of the remedy, but God makes the offer. Therefore, the person who accepts the gift though possibly with a mental defect like Charlie Garrett, has more wisdom than the most intelligent minds of humanity who reject it. I've seen people that are mentally challenged that have accepted Christ. I've seen, as we saw today, little children that have accepted Christ. We've seen old people that can hardly remember anything about what they've done in their life. And they say, you know, I know there's a problem in my life and they will accept Christ. It is universal. It is universal. But there's a point where it can no longer happen. Think of it. A mentally challenged person who is ridiculed by those around him has the ability to grasp what they cannot. 
The little child who receives Jesus by faith has a greater understanding of God's salvation than the scientist who works on nuclear physics but who shuns Christ. I'm so glad you posted that today. It fits perfectly with what we're talking about. And the believing slave who is beaten and scorned by the master has a greater position by far than the non-believing master will ever imagine. This is the wisdom of God and the foolishness of man. It is the glory of God revealed in an instrument of scorn and shame. It is the cross of Jesus Christ, power, wisdom, and majesty from heaven's throne. Life application. Do you feel snubbed by the world sometimes because of your faith? Anybody? I know I do. I see a head shaking back there. So what? You have access to heaven's riches. All they have is temporary access to earth's vanishing vapors. Stand fast in your faith in Jesus Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God for all who believe. Now, we got 10 minutes, so I'm going to try. This is a little long, but we'll, we'll try to get 125, because I said we're going to try to get there today. 125. Because, oh, and it's the end of a paragraph, too, so next week we start out fresh. 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This verse needs to be considered from the perspective of man rather than the reality found in God. It is speaking of perception, not in actual terms. In other words, because the foolishness of God is a perception of what God has done, is doing, or will do rather than the actuality of those things. God's plan is anything but foolish. But when man sees it, meaning man in general, he finds it foolish taking thousands of years to save the world? What about all those who died in the flood? How stupid, right? I mean, we hear that people dying in Africa and they didn't get to hear about Jesus. How stupid. Picking a bunch of tent dwellers to reveal his plans to the world. How stupid. Hanging someone on a tree to save someone else. How stupid. Going away after being resurrected from the dead and still being gone 2,000 years later? How stupid. That's what the world thinks. They hear this and they think that's absolutely crazy. Unregenerate man sees these things as foolishness. Picking up the Bible and turning to any page will reveal more foolishness to them because they simply cannot grasp the enormity of the plan, the perfection behind it, and the wisdom which is involved in it. To the logical statistician, the numbers don't add up. To the scientists, the data seems to suggest chaos rather than order. To the philosopher, there is always the question of how evil fits into the picture and how unjust God must be to send people to hell. I hear this all the time. You hear it all, the, especially from college professors. All of these seemingly foolish things have purpose. They have order. They have sure and just resolutions. But for the individual man, he can't see beyond his particular shortcomings. In this foolishness as perceived by man, the one who understands the gravity of the situation and the perfection of the cross will find that God, that truly God is wiser than man. Again, in the second half of the verse, Paul speaks of the perception rather than the actuality, the weakness of God. That's our perception. It's not the reality. That's how man sees the plan. How could God use someone like Jacob who supposedly saw him on several occasions, wrestled with him in the night, was carried along all his days, and yet was so weak in his faith as to worry about losing his son, 
Benjamin? How could he be such a faithless person? What kind of God would use a person like Jacob? In the line of the Messiahs of the Messiah are prostitutes, fornicators, murderers, adulterers, and on and on and on. What kind of a plan is that? A bunch of weak and useless sorts leading to someone great? I don't think so. The Messiah of the world hung on a cross? You've got to be kidding me. If he's so great, why didn't he actually call down the angels he claimed he had available? Why doesn't he write his name in the sky so that everybody can see it? What a weak God. I've heard people say that. Why doesn't he just give us a sign? Why doesn't he just tell us? He's so weak. Again, to the one who hasn't seen sin for what it is, to the unregenerate man, to the one looking for external displays of power and might, to all of these, the plan seems filled with weakness. But the perceived weakness of God is actually, actually stronger than man. What he has done is of such a magnitude of power more than any person could conceive that it is actually simply astonishing. Every drop of rain in the upper Nile was calculated into what would become a famine in the Middle East so that Israel would need to travel to Egypt. Every grain of grass is monitored to ensure that all things work out as they should. Every galaxy and star in the heavens has an exact place to keep the universe properly balanced for life right here on Earth. What man fails to consider is held tightly under control by God, who knows all things, sees all things, and directs all things according to his wisdom and according to his might. As I said, there's not a quark in the middle of a red giant star, 10 billion whatever away from us that he isn't aware of right now that is not there for that exact reason. And it may pop into another star on the other side of the universe. That's his choice, but he knew it would happen and he is doing that to keep us going on this planet. Life application, oh, and we're done. When Paul says in Romans 8 verse 28 that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We can be 100% sure this is true. The wisdom of God and the power of God are so far beyond our comprehension that we cannot come close to perceiving it. Rest, rest in the knowledge that God is God and he will take care of you according to his promise. And if it means a bullet in the back of the head by a, an ISIS member, or if it means dying of cancer, that's his plan. We just have to accept it. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't go get chemotherapy if that's what you want to do, whatever. But he has a plan and it would have included the chemotherapy if that was your choice because he knew that he would do that, right? Everything is in God's control. Everything is in God's control. And we cannot take care of the things we cannot take care of. So we need to simply take them and say, here, you take care of it, Lord. And as Tom says, every single week when he prays, the Lord's hands are capable. He has capable hands. We don't need to worry about those things. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are aware of these things. We thank you that you have all things under control so that when we pray for somebody like Lothar, who right now is suffering from cancer once again, or maybe our brother Nick, who's out in California, and he's struggling with being in a bed 24 hours a day. Those things are terrible. We are sorry that they're happening. We would pray that they would have relief from those things. But at the same time, we know that they are serving a better purpose in your mind and in your wisdom. And so help us to accept that even while trying to get out of our situation if possible. If you want us to remain there, help us to be content in that state, whatever it is. To your glory, to your honor, we pray this in the exalted name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.
Uh, all right, let me, oh, let me back this baby up. 